This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 18, Episode 31. This is Writing Excuses. Getting personal, mining your own life for themes. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Dong Wan. I'm Aaron. I'm Dan. And I have opinions that don't oh, always make it into my stuff. Keep them to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is an opinion episode. So uh, this is our last episode where we're kind of digging into Dark One Forgotten and, and how and why it was written. Um, one thing that is very personal for me is the concept of memory. Uh, I, when I was first married, spent eight months living with my grandfather who has Alzheimer's. This is uh, one of my favorite people in the world. He practically raised me for a huge chunk of my childhood. And then I, the situation was reversed. I became his caretaker um, and helped kind of guide him through this disease that eventually killed him a few years later. Um, And I had not realized how much undealt with trauma there was until I wrote a John Cleaver novella called um, Next of Kin, which is specifically about a monster who consumes other people's memories and then relives them. And all of this stuff just came gushing out. And I have since written several books that deal very closely with memory and what it is to have or lose memories and Dark One Forgotten is one of them. That becomes a major part of the story, especially at the end when all of the supernatural stuff is revealed. And so I thought it would be really interesting to talk about this specifically, not memory, but the broader category of how do you take something that is so personal, that means so much to you, and then mine it for fiction and storytelling? You know, I get the question all the time of like, what are you looking for in a project? What makes something stand out to you? You know, what makes you pluck, pluck something from the the uh, unsolicited submission pile? Um, and not every book has to be this way. Obviously, there's lots of reasons to write. There's lots of fiction that works. But for me, the thing that I'm looking for is always, where do I see the author in the story? When I read a pitch, when I read a piece of fiction, I want to know that, a person who was in a place in a situation felt that they had to tell me this story. Why was why were they the only person who could do this? And that comes from really personal places. That comes from stories that are rooted in people's childhoods and their experiences and their hopes and dreams and fears. And I think that for me is always the thing that makes me really just like sit up, pay attention, and get so excited to, to work on a story. Sometimes it's as simple as uh, the things the the things that you love day to day, like like I mean the foods that you eat, the things that you listen to. Uh, as somebody who studied music and sound recording technology, I listen a lot, and so describing sounds in the things that I write is fun for me. I like to do that. That's that's some, now, it has to be the right character in order to be noticing something. Some characters will say, well, what's that booming noise? Another might say, you know, there's a 
there's a 30 hertz rumble and it's increasing, whatever. Um, but the, the foods that I love to eat and the smells associated with those foods, these are, these are things that bring characters to life, that absolutely make the page, uh, make the page into something that, uh, that lives for us because the things that the things that we love, the things that we sense, the things that we are passionate about, we infuse into our characters in small ways. And it doesn't need to be a book about food or a book about pipe organs or whatever. It can just be a book about people who experience things the way you experience them. And when I think about sort of personal issues and the personal things, I think about the things we carry, which is a lot of the times the way that I think about like the issues that we're going through in our lives and the things that we're processing. And there are some things that we carry for a long time that may show up in all of our fiction. Memory may always be a component of what you're talking about, Dan. I'm also fascinated with memory for different reasons because I don't have a very good one. And so I'm very fascinated with how much memory makes us who we are. But then there are things that you pick up along the way. Some of them are things like food, smaller things that bring you joy. Some of them are issues that you're working through for a specific period of time in your life and then set down. And what I think is really exciting is that fiction gives you an opportunity to, number one, find out what things you're carrying. Like you mm-hmm. didn't realize, Dan, like how much that was a part of you until you put it on the page. Mm-hmm. So sometimes when you're writing, you can go back and find out this is something I've been carrying and I've been carrying it so long that little bits of it are like sprinkling out on the pages that I'm writing and the things that I'm doing. But what can be kind of difficult is that over time, the things that you carry change. And one thing that I found really interesting, and I think I've talked about before on the podcast is during the early pandemic, like so much of what we were carrying was changing. And as writers, you're trying to catch up to the issues that you're in your life that are changing and it's changing the way that you do fiction and it's changing the stories that you're trying to tell. And there's something really amazing and beautiful in that. But I think it also can be difficult to know how to catch up to the issues that are now the things that you're carrying. Yeah. uh, I love that metaphor for what you're carrying because so much of, so much of carrying something comes down to how you're carrying it. Uh, Carrying a rock might be very easy or very hard, depending on the size of it. But also, if I'm carrying it in a backpack versus carrying it in my shoe, that is going to totally change the way that I am interacting with it. Uh, And the kind of the amount of pain that something relatively small might cause if it's just something that I'm not aware of or that I'm not dealing with. And that can spill out sometimes problematically into fiction. And and with that first draft of Next of Kin, I had to tone it back and say, okay, wait a minute. This needs to be a story about John Cleaver, not a journaling entry about Dan Wells. And I think that that, to get to some like more like practical nuts and bolts of how to do this, that when you're looking at, at stuff from your life, when you're mining it, you don't have to say, this is a thing that is happening in my life and then put it in as a major plot point in the book that you're writing. It can just be something that you're holding in your head and it will inflect it, or it can be showing up in small details. Like one of the things that I talk about all the time is that I will I will gift my characters with the things from the real from my real world that are, are just nagging at me. Like uh, when you look at Lady Astronaut of Mars, there's a scene in which um, Nathaniel cannot make it to the toilet in time. Um, 
I had spent time with my grandmother, who at the time was 105 years old, and and we had that moment together. She has no relationship to him. Like, I didn't write a story about my grandmother. I didn't write a story about that. But I explored the 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 feelings and the moments and the viscerality of that and transplanted it into into another time and place and with another character and you can do that with you know large thematic things or you can do that with just small small pieces of it and doing that can add so much flavor and emotion to a story uh, because it is something like Don Juan said at the beginning that is intrinsic to you. Uh, We can read that scene and go, oh, this author has gone through this. This author knows what they're talking about uh, and has helped put me into a position to experience some of those same emotions, which for me is a huge part of why I read in the first place. One of the most challenging, and I would argue the, the, the most likely to make your story robust, techniques is to take whatever this is and find the polar opposite and be able to put both in the story. Mm-hmm. If you have a if you have a particular hobby horse, uh, with, I mean, it might be a, a sensory thing like, you know, foods or music. It might be a political stance. If you can take the polar opposite and represent that well, then not only will you succeed as a human in more deeply exploring that thing you're passionate about, you will also make your story more robust and it won't feel like, it won't feel didactic. It won't feel like you're just preaching to us. And the polar opposite may not be like the obvious, like political difference. The reason I say this is one of the things that I was working through in my own writing is a lot of my uh, published short stories are about somebody who is facing a culture that is the enemy. Like the the antagonist of the story is the cultural norms that don't support this person's life. And figuring out a way to kind of get past that often by lashing out at that culture. And I felt like a lot of what I was exploring in retrospect was the idea like the master's tools can never dismantle the master's house. But during uh, COVID and the resurgence of Black Lives Matter, part of what I started thinking is, well, what am I saying does dismantle the master's house? Am I saying that it gets to remain standing? That isn't what I necessarily want to be saying. I want to be looking at different ways around this issue that are mm-hmm. that are separate. And so some of the stories that I'm working on now are more about people having differing opinions about how to accomplish the same goal. They all agree that the master's house should be dismantled, but some people want to blow it up. Some people want to burn it down. Some people want to use the tools. And figuring that out has made the stories richer because I'm experiencing this issue on a deeper level and therefore sort my characters. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I love about that is sometimes it can be really direct in terms of like the metaphor. And, you know, when I say I want to be able to see the author in the piece, sometimes that is very obvious in terms of like, I have a book. Uh, that will have come out just this last spring called Chlorine. Um, that's by a young woman who's um, a child of immigrants, used to be a high school uh, a swimmer. And the book is about a child of immigrants who is a high school swimmer, right? There's like a very much a one-to-one. Like I can see, I can see, oh yeah, you are in this story. Um, but other times it's like layered through many, many filters of metaphor, right? So I think about uh, N.K. Jemison's Broken Earth books, which are, just a searing portrait about of uh, uh, marginalization, of oppression, of colonialism, and all these things that feels like she wrote a book about living in America, but 
there's nothing in that book that I can one-to-one map to this is that ethnic group, this is that cultural group, this is that. She is writing a book about magic schools and wizards and magic rocks, um, but still managed to make something that felt very politically trenchant to me as a reader in 2020 or whenever I was reading that, 2019. And it was very transformative for me of understanding how an author's experience can completely inform a text without it necessarily being legible about what specific thing mapped to what. After the break, I'm going to talk about turning the knob to 11 first, but we're going to take a break. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So the thing of the week this week is uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. As we are talking about how stories can be very personal for us, um, sometimes the audience's relationship to that is also very personal, right? So this is a movie. It just swept the Oscars a little while ago. Uh, It's made by a directing pair named The Daniels, who wrote and directed it. And it is very much a story of uh, Asian immigrants to the United States and uh, their children's relationship to them. And for me, as a queer Asian American child of immigrants, it hit very, very close to home for me. Um, There's so many different aspects of that story that I identify with. And there's so many things that feel so specifically grounded in someone's experience and their perspective. And then the specific experiences of the actors themselves and what they brought to those roles that it, I think, really resonated with audiences because it did have that very deep personal connection. It felt like everyone was bringing their own selves to that set, to that production. And that is so touchable and it's so tangible and legible in the end product in a way that meant means it was hugely impactful for me when I saw it um, and for a lot of my peers and a lot of people uh, in the world generally. So if you haven't seen it yet, Everything Everywhere All at Once is a magnificent movie. Um, I love it almost on every level. It is absurdist. It is strange. It is charming and romantic and funny and exciting. And I cannot recommend it highly enough. So in This Is Spinal Tap, there's this joke about how the guitar amp has a knob that goes to 11. Well, how does that make it louder? Well, this one goes to 11. Ha ha, very funny. As a sound engineer, there's this technique that I learned that works great in audio engineering. It works great in applying filters in Photoshop. It is terrible to try to work with in cooking. And the principle is this. Uh, start 
by turning the knob to 11. You know, somebody said, well, does this need more bass? I don't know. Let's see what more bass sounds like. All the way to 11 and then pull it back. When I said earlier, you know, find the polar opposite, I didn't mean start with 11 and keep it there. I meant start with 11 and then and then nuance it and play with it because until you know how loud it goes, um, you might not really feel the shape of it. The same thing in Photoshop. You're applying a filter, throw the filter all the way down, crank it all the way up, and then pull it back and start to start to massage it. This doesn't work well in cooking when you're, say, trying to see how much cumin is enough and you begin with the whole jar. That's hard to undo. Um, but I love, I love this principle. And this is kind of a multi-layered sort of approach to the approach because audio engineering and visual stuff and cooking are things that I've already talked about. And they color not just what I write about, but how I talk about what I write. One thing I wanted to bring up that occurred to me as you were talking about this in terms of turning it to 11 is also remember as a writer that you're also a person. And I would encourage you to take care of yourself first and foremost and to be gentle with yourself. A lot of what we're talking about when we talk about mining your own life for themes is digging into your own traumas, into some of the worst things that happen to you, into oppressions that you experience on a daily basis. Um, I once made a joke to my own therapist that... um, Sometimes I feel like my job is sticking a crowbar into a writer's trauma and then pulling until a novel pops out. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't actually do that to my writers. I don't actually, you know, mind their traumas in that way and don't try to re-traumatize them. Their writers say other things. (laughs) I'm sure that they do. Um, I, I do want to encourage people, though, to remember that this is dealing with very difficult material and that you should be taking care of yourself first. You should be paying attention to what your limits are. And I would encourage you, if you're doing this work, to make sure that you are working with people who can support you in that, whether that's professional mental health or a support network, whatever it is. Um, And, you know, make sure that you are uh, checking in and seeing how you're doing as you're going through this process. That also may mean giving yourself more time and space for stories that hew closer to your heart, closer to the bone. So whereas you might be like, I finished a story and I'm going to send it to my critique group the next day. If this is something that is very personal for you, you may come more personally. More of yourself will be exposed when you're getting feedback, when you're talking about it. And so it's nice to give yourself a breath and make sure that you're sort of ready for that experience so that you're not sort of out there like raw and then people are trying to give you feedback and it's hard for you to take it in because it feels like it's feedback to who you are and not just what you wrote. Exactly, exactly. Also bear in mind that when we talk about mining you're, you know, getting personal and, and, and mining your own life. Your own life is made up of more than trauma. You can Absolutely. mine the happy stuff. You can mine the good memories. You can mine those good sensory details, the good relationships. Like every romantic relationship that I write is in some base, some aspect based on my relationship with my husband. Um, my picture book, Molly on the Moon, actually, I guess this is a trauma, but is <laughs> is based on a real life thing that happened with me and my brother where he... He, he took my, my stuffed lamb when, when I was like five. Um, but it's also based on this other happy memory of me making a toy for him. 
And you can look for those, those, you know, those are gems. There's a, a thing that I think we do where we discount our own life and experiences as being like normal, but they're only normal for like you. Like, mm-hmm. They're not, not an experience that anyone else has had. And this goes back to what Howard was saying of put sounds, put, put foods, put taste, put sensory things that you experience in there. You're mining more than just like the big, heavy, dark stuff. I completely agree that I would also encourage you to find the, the joyful things in your life and put those in your text. Find, you know, the friendships, the, the relationships, the experiences. You know, plenty of people have great relationships with their parents and their family. It is just as important to see good parents in young adult fiction as it is to see neglectful parents, right? Um, so I think finding that balance is so important to building a, a really well-rounded presence in the in the in your book. Um, I loved what Aaron said about uh, you know kind of being careful, making sure that when you get feedback on this type of very personal storytelling, that you're in the right place to receive it. Um, I also I want to add to that that I find the need for revision to be even stronger when I am dealing with something that I care about this deeply. Because often the first thing I've put down does not work for the story. Um, there's there's a thing I say all the time, which is that your first draft is for what you want to say and your final draft is for how you want to say it. When it's dealing with something that relates specifically to a pain or a trauma that I am processing, the first draft isn't even what I want to say yet. It's just this kind of, blurp of feelings that come out. And then I need to go back and work it into a form and say, yes, the story does want this emotion here and it does want this rawness, but maybe not, maybe, maybe it needs to be shaped a little better. Maybe I need to turn this more into what the character is going to do rather than just me. And I think that's true for joyful, fun things as well. I mean, Mm -hmm. think about when you have a shared joke with someone and somebody else walks in and you're trying to like explain it and there's 18 amazing like things about your friendship with that person that are like all boiled down to this sentence that you have no, it's really difficult to explain. That can happen in your own relationship to your happy memories. Like you have a very deep relationship with why this particular thing that happened is so meaningful for you, this food, this sound. And you have to make sure to bring the reader along and give them enough of it that they can understand it so that they don't feel like they're eavesdropping on a joke that they will never get. Absolutely. I remember uh, there was an episode of Babylon 5 uh, where the captain had been given a teddy bear and it was so weird. The way he interacted with this teddy bear and the way he kind of growled at it all the time, I was convinced that this was part of some plot-centric supernatural or science fictional something was going on. And no, I found out afterwards that it's just that the guy writing that episode really hated toys and really hated funny, cute things and assumed that every member of the audience would share that exact relationship. <laughs> and so all of none of the jokes landed. None of the stuff he was trying to do made sense without the context that was inside of his brain. And so making sure that you give the reader all of those... The director pranked him (laughs) by filming the whole thing and giving it to us. (laughs) (laughs) No, but you have to provide the audience with the right signposts, the right breadcrumbs, the right context, so that this emotion, whether it is good or bad, whether it is painful or whatever, uh, this inside joke 
makes sense to them as much as it makes sense to you. I think that brings us to our homework. Well, fair listener, as uh, as you may suspect, the, the homework's going to feel pretty obvious here. Um, I'm going to make this. I'm going to make this a three part assignment. Take something that is joyful for you that you think about and that brings you joy. Take something that is painful for you that you think about it and it it brings you pain. And take something that is vivid for you that when you think about it, there are sensory associations. Those three things, give those things either individually or altogether to a character or characters in what you are writing and see if you can express those things in ways that feel real to you. Our next episode will feature a special guest. It's Kirsten Vangsness, who is best known for her role as Penelope Garcia in Criminal Minds. Kirsten is also an incredible writer, and we loved talking with her about imposter syndrome and using tools from your non-writing life to fuel your writing. Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. For this episode, your hosts were Mary Robinette Kowal, Dong Wan Song, Aaron Roberts, Dan Wells, and Howard Taylor. This episode was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr., mastered by Alex Jackson, and produced by Emma Reynolds. For more information, visit writingexcuses.com. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.